just like new. <sighs> I just woke up. Don't tell me it's time already. Another episode. Welcome back to your 12th favorite podcast, Reeducated, where we reimagine, rethink, and reinvent education. It's your host, Gautam Yegapin, alive and blessed to present today's conversation. Stay thirsty for knowledge, and I guess water too. How are y'all doing today? I hope y'all are having a phenomenal week. I'm so excited to share this week's conversation with you. This week, we spoke to Professor William Gormley. He is the co-director for the Center for Research on Children in the U.S., as well as a university professor. The main questions I had for the professor were, one, how important is early childhood education? Two, how do we balance state and federal funding as well as responsibility when it comes to our education system? Three, How do we actually measure whether teachers in school systems are doing well? And four, what are the biggest political differences across the political aisle when it comes to educational policy? All these questions were explored in our conversation, and I really hope you enjoy. Here you go. I think that the early years, in some ways, are the most important years because they lay the foundation, ideally, for everything that is yet to come. So... Early childhood education is of critical importance to children generally. It obviously meant a lot to you. It uh, probably meant a lot to me, although I'm trying to remember. (laughs) I struggle to remember those years in my case, but uh, it's particularly important for disadvantaged kids. So many disadvantaged kids do not have the best home environment and they do not live in the best neighborhood. And uh, some of them live uh, under circumstances that impose toxic stress. Mm. And that can be very worrisome. It has physical and physiological impacts on these kids. You know, the sound of gunfire at night or not knowing whether you're going to see your father ever again. These are traumatic experiences. And uh, the research suggests that a strong early childhood education program can be especially beneficial to disadvantaged kids in particular. And is there a reason that this is the case for, because let's say your first few years, pre-K up until third grade, you're able to have this form of education. What what happens the rest of the years if, if your environment is, is pretty toxic and though, does that not make the same level of impact? Yeah, it certainly does. Uh, so a, a good preschool, for example, is certainly not uh, a magic bullet. Uh, everything that is happening in your life at that same point in time is important. And everything that happens in your life after that point in time is important. Uh, Having sustaining environments, K through 12, is of critical importance to determining whether the positive short-term impacts of a strong pre-K program will actually persist over time. Hmm. Interesting. Okay, so one thing I, I was reading this, I forgot what book it was in, but it was talking about how your reading level at the third grade is like a high predictive um, indicator of your salary, your income. Have you have you read something like that before? Well, there are some studies that look at that. Uh, Greg Duncan, who's a prominent economist at UC Irvine, has done some excellent work on that subject. And uh, the funny thing about his research is that uh, early math skills seem to be better predictors mm. of later educational success than early reading skills. Interesting. So uh, early reading skills predict later reading success. Early math skills predict later math success. That's not very surprising. But early math skills also predict later reading success. 
whereas uh, the reverse is not true. Oh, wow. Um, my question was going to be, if, if that seems to be the case and it is, it is shown in research, where is the difficulty in actually convincing policymakers that the earlier you start children in you know, these pre-K programs, it will clearly make a huge difference, no? Well, so where are the difficulties? Uh, I guess I uh, start out by saying that many, many politicians are already convinced that early childhood education is a great investment for taxpayers. And so uh, at this point in time, 44 of our 50 states have their own state-funded pre-K program. Seven of those states have a universal pre-K program that's available to all four-year-olds, irrespective of income. And the remainder, which is about, uh, I have to think about that, that's probably 37, 37 states, mm-hmm. have a targeted pre-K program, which is available for disadvantaged kids. So the politicians in those 43 or 44 states are already convinced that uh, that uh, government-funded early childhood education is a good investment for taxpayers. Mm. And, and I guess, uh, you know, another question to ask is, what would the benefits be if you simply just, instead of even thinking about it as pre-K, what if you just moved all of education down a year where everyone started kindergarten at four and then first grade at five? Would, would that work? Well, that's a provocative suggestion. Uh, that would make it mandatory. And that would probably raise some political hackers. I guess my view is that's probably not necessary. And here's why I think that. The states that have established a universal pre-K program that's voluntary, but that's available to all four-year-olds, irrespective of income, have experienced uh, consistently very, very high enrollment rates. So I guess it seems to me that if if you offer a high-quality early childhood education program, even if it's not mandatory, the overwhelming majority of parents are likely to take advantage of it. Mm. Okay, that makes sense. And and I guess an, another question that I have for you is, what is the balance between the state, like the local and state governments versus the federal government when it comes to enacting some of these policies? That's a great question. And I guess I would say that at the moment, the state governments and increasingly the local governments are doing more of the heavy lifting than the federal government. Uh, the state governments essentially doubled preschool enrollments with state funds over a 10-year period. So that suggests that many state governments have decided that this is a good investment. Increasingly, some local governments have done that. And it's a pretty impressive list because they're some of the biggest cities in America. New York City, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Washington, D.C., Denver, San Antonio, Seattle, the list goes on and on. A number of cities now have universal pre-K. So the state and local governments have been doing quite a bit in this area. The federal government has not been uh, has not been totally silent on these questions, but uh, it has not done as much. And, you know, it's part of a broader pattern. The, the funny thing about the federal government is that uh, historically, it has not really invested a lot of money in children or children's programs. At the present time, for example, the federal government actually spends seven times the amount of money uh, for senior citizens that it spends on children. Mm. So I think that's a, a mis- misallocation of resources that the federal government probably needs to address. Do you have any 
hypotheses for why that might be the case? Well, I think that the federal government uh, got into the the business of looking after senior citizens in particular during the New Deal under Franklin Roosevelt and then during the Great Society under Lyndon Johnson. And so the creation of the Social Security program and later the Medicare program established a very strong, significant federal presence in providing much needed care and assistance to senior citizens. Mm. I think that that commitment that the federal government made to senior citizens through those two programs has been reinforced by the extraordinary power of the AARP, uh, which is one of the most effective lobbies in the United States. This is an organization that is so large that they actually have their own zip code. <laughs> so, and they're very formidable. Uh, they are very effective lobbyists and they should be effective lobbyists. But I think what's happened if you try to, you know, step back and take a, a view from 30,000 feet is that we see that, yes, our society has invested resources in senior citizens and that's appropriate, but we have not come close to investing the kinds of resources that are really needed uh, to help uh, children who, after all, do represent our future. Hmm. So I have two questions from that. Um, I'm really trying to think which one out because I know I'm going to forget the other one. So I think I want to go with this one. You can ask both and I'll write both of them down. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's a good idea. Okay. So what I'm really interested in is when you say funding young children, I feel like another big problem a lot of people have are when governments invest in school, are they actually doing it in like an effective way where that funding is actually improving the lives of children? Like if the, um, you know, the funding was to increase X amount, would it also lead to an actual improvement in the children's education? And I guess another question that I also had is in terms of what are your beliefs on the balance between the federal and state government? Who who really should be having more of a say in what type of education happens? And I think that decision ends up leading to a lot of different outcomes, right? Sure. Well, those are, are both great questions. So let me tackle the first one first, which is an empirical question. I think that uh, the taxpayers at all levels of government have every reason to expect and demand that uh, publicly funded programs are effective. So I think that's a very reasonable and legitimate expectation. Uh, Luckily, uh, and you know this as a a budding social scientist yourself, uh, social science uh, today and policy analysis in particular uh, offers a lot of very rich, compelling, credible evidence on which programs are working, which ones aren't. So we need to have more of that research and we need to draw uh, the right lessons from that research where it already exists. What what do we know? Um, Let's take K through 12 education. Some people are worried that we spend uh, too much on K through 12 education. Uh, Some people wonder whether government expenditures actually have an impact on either the quality of education that children receive or on their educational and later life outcome. There's some good research by uh, Carabo Jackson and Rucker Johnson that shows pretty clearly that there is a statistically significant and substantively significant positive relationship between K through 12 public expenditures and students' education success. So yes, there are some instances where we could uh, invest the money more effectively, but uh, on on balance, the research suggests that uh, educational programs do tend to be effective. That said, we all want them to be even more effective. So the challenge is to find those programs 
that give us an even bigger bang for the buck. Now, I can say, having looked at Tulsa's universal pre-K program, that that program does give us a good uh, investment opportunity. Uh, we've done some benefit cost studies focusing on the, uh, the probable long-term consequences of Tulsa's universal pre-K program. We've done this work with uh, Tim Bartik, who is at uh, the Upjohn Institute in Kalamazoo, Michigan. And based on that research, we've concluded that the long-term benefits of Tulsa's universal pre-K program exceed the short-term costs by about three to one or four to one. Wow. So that's that's a great investment for the taxpayers. It's it's an investment that yields economic benefits down the road. Very cool. And is the second question, Sai? Okay, the second question. Well, um, you know, uh, in order to decide the appropriate role for the federal government as opposed to the state governments in any policy space, whether it's early childhood education or anything else, you probably want to ask two key questions. The first is, are there any interstate externalities mm. that are involved? Uh, do, for example, the educational benefits that uh, children experience in Oklahoma have consequences for people who live in Missouri or Arkansas or Texas? And then the second question is, uh, are these redistributive or distributive policies? Uh, and I would argue that many of these policies are redistributive because they are desperately needed by disadvantaged children. Uh, the interstate externalities of, of early childhood education are probably not that great. So the case for a strong federal government role based on that criterion alone is probably not compelling. But the redistributive consequences of early childhood education are quite strong and quite important in my view. And that helps to make the case for a stronger federal government. Mm. I guess I have a response to both of those answers in that when we talk about these interstate externalities, as well as, you know, you talk about this three to one return, is the way to actually look at some of these issues from an economic standpoint, like what is actually the financial return? Is that, do you feel like that's the best way to maybe approach education? It depends on whether you're defining financial returns narrowly or broadly. If you're asking, should we only care about, let's say, long-term earnings, then my answer to that question is, of course, no. There are lots of other things we should care about. We should care about uh, whether, whether people who do or do not get an early childhood education that is a high-quality program uh, go on to get uh, rewarding jobs and fulfilling jobs and satisfying jobs, not just jobs that help to pay the bills. So both are important, but when, when economists monetize long-term consequences, they're often, at least if the work is good, trying to monetize not just traditional economic outcomes, but also some of these more intangible outcomes. Mm -hmm. and, and what would those be? Well, so it, it's, it's sometimes difficult to do, but Ideally, uh, you would want to know whether, whether people have uh, a good job, whether they have a stable job, whether they uh, have a good life, whether they have a stable life. And there are some ways to, to try to integrate some of those outcomes into 
economic measures and a benefit cost analysis. Mm. You know, this is done in environmental policy all the time because what you're really trying to get at in doing a benefit cost analysis and environmental policy is not is the quality of life, really, and also uh, the, the longevity of life. So uh, I think a common misunderstanding of benefit cost analysis is that it only looks at financial or monetary consequences. I think at its best, it uses financial or economic measures to look at a range of consequences, not just economic, but also social consequences. Wow, very cool. I, I wanted to touch back on a point that you had made earlier in, in, in when I normally hear of people talking about increasing funding to schools, I typically hear it in the context of increasing teacher pay. And I kind of wanted to understand when the funding is in increased, what are the different aspects in which a school can even like allocate those fun new funds to? Uh, do you mean in, in K through 12 education? Yes. Early childhood education? Um, if they're different than both. Um, well, it's it's maybe easier to to talk about you know something that's narrow and focused. But let's talk about the the whole ball of wax. Inevitably, most education funding is going to go to teachers because uh, teachers represent about two thirds of your average school budget, oh. and sometimes more than that. So, uh, and and furthermore, we're facing a, a crisis these days in trying to recruit and retain outstanding teachers. Even before COVID, we were anticipating a, an impending shortage of uh, public school teachers. Uh, those, those prognostications are undoubtedly uh, getting worse and worse by the minute because teachers have taken a tremendous hit during COVID. Uh, you know, they have been put in extremely difficult, uh, compromising situations. They're not fully appreciated. And so, if anything, I think that the teacher shortage that many people were forecasting, let's say five years ago, has probably uh, is probably getting even worse. So we do have to invest in teachers, and and that means recruiting and retaining the very best people we can to the teaching profession, and it also means allocating the best teachers to the schools that need help the most. You know, through whatever mechanism is required, it might be bonus pay. If you're willing to teach in a, a challenging inner city school, it might be some other system of incentives, but we, we definitely have to make sure that the very best uh, teachers are in the schools that are facing uh, the biggest uh, demographic and social and economic challenge. But I think the promise of your question is, are there things that we can and should do uh, beyond spending more money on teachers? And yes, I, I do think there's a, a lot that we can do. Uh, it seems to me that uh, there are some uh, infrastructure needs in schools, uh, and uh, you know we've been thinking a lot of infrastructure in a broader context lately, and in, in the context of bridges and roads and highways and so forth. But there are also infrastructure needs that schools face. So um, you know historically those needs have often been met uh, through uh, uh, local school bonds. But not every community uh, is able or willing to make those kinds of investments. So I do think that, uh, especially in, in some parts of the country, that the government needs to help in improving our educational infrastructure defined in a traditional way. Beyond that, though, I think that we need to think more creatively about ways to deliver educational services. 
And we also need to, uh, to think uh, more creatively about how to develop and improve the curricula uh, in our schools. And uh, some of that can be done uh, through uh, a good allocation of additional funds. And, and I guess that, that funding would not be done at like each individual local school, right? That fund would probably go to some sort of institution that might be doing research on that. Is that correct? Yeah. So I, I do think that we, we need to pool our resources and we need to invest some money in R&D. And we do have some, some federal organizations that do that. Uh, the Institute for Education Sciences, for example. But I think they could be doing more to fund research and development uh, that zeroes in on effective curricula that zeroes in on effective teaching practices and that tries uh, to integrate uh, STEM education into all this because of its growing importance. Mm. You had mentioned something earlier about retaining the quote unquote best teachers, right? And, and I kind of wanted to tap in a little bit on your organizational report cards book um, and ask, what would you say defines a high performing teacher? What metrics would you use to kind of even analyze that? Well, uh, there are ways to measure good teaching, and luckily, we don't have to reinvent the wheel because there's some pretty good examples already of uh, local school districts that have uh, figured out some, some pretty interesting and credible ways uh, to identify better teachers and to reward better teachers. One of them is the District of Columbia. So the, the D.C. Public Schools has a teacher pay system that's known as the impact system. And it was developed really under Michelle Ree. It was improved by Kaya Henderson, and it continues to this day. And uh, it essentially includes several component parts. Uh, one of those is uh, classroom visits. So under the original version of this program, some master educators would sit in on uh, a classroom assess the quality of teaching and the interaction that takes place in that classroom, and then offers some feedback to the teacher and some information uh, to the principal that would ultimately feed into the teacher's pay. Under the latest version of that, I think uh, that they're relying now on principals to do the classroom visits rather than the master educators, probably because the master educators were more expensive. But the basic idea is to have some systematic recurring uh, classroom observations that uh, essentially try to identify uh, good practices and bad practices that offer some constructive feedback, but that also forward that information to the people who ultimately decide what your pay is going to be the following year. Mm. So that's part of it. The other part of it that's a little more controversial is something called value-added modeling. And basically what that does, uh, at least for, for some teachers teaching some subjects, is uh, to try to develop statistical models that uh, predict the kinds of educational outcomes that one should expect for a third grade math classroom, given the demographics of the students who are in that particular school and that particular classroom. So that's the, the basic logic behind it. Uh, now, this only works for certain subjects and certain grades. So it's generally not used for art. It's generally not used for music. It's generally not used for phys ed. It can be used and has been used for math, for reading. It can be used for science. And when it works well, essentially, it uh, helps to uh, identify those teachers who are 
getting the best out of their students and who are helping them to learn at a more rapid rate. And then they are rewarded uh, in their next year's salary for those accomplishments as measured by the statistical model. Mm. So uh, two things to add. One is from my personal experience, the walk-ins just never seemed to be something that worked because I would visibly see teachers completely change up their teaching style and their like control of the classroom as soon as somebody walked in. And I think not only that, I think the kids also are more aware and usually are kind enough to also change their own behavior when someone's in the room. And so I never really fully understood that. I always thought it would have to be done in a way where the teacher wasn't aware that they were being watched, at which point now you'll probably have ethical issues. Mm -hmm. um, and something I also wanted to add is I, I feel like what you had said was really cool, where if the teacher isn't necessarily like afraid of that interaction leading to some sort of serious repercussions of them actually losing their job, and it was more just used for feedback, I feel like then you could maybe sell them on not knowing that they're being recorded. What are your thoughts on that? Well, you've experienced it, and I, I value that experience. Uh, if you say that in your classrooms, um, there was a kind of Potemkin village that, uh, that was presented to the, the visitor, and then as soon as the visitor left, all chaos erupted, and it was a different situation. Um, you know, I think that's a legitimate concern. Um, I do think there are ways to minimize that. Uh, I think if the process is perceived to be fair, then the teacher will hopefully have some buy-in. Um, I think if the visit is unannounced, you know, that may make for a fairer presentation or representation of what normally goes on. So that's another way to deal with it. Um, and then to use other measures. So the classroom visits are important, but ultimately in an ideal world, you're going to look at student outcomes in some way too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and that's why I was going to bring up the, the value added concept as well. I was um, speaking to another professor, Vera Michaelcheck, and she was talking about how even when we think about value added, I feel like another way we can look at it is long-term value added. So for example, let's say I took a chemistry class and the amount of information I learned in that one year is amazing. But because of my teacher, I now hate that subject and never want to study it again. So even though there may have been a high level of value added in the short term, over the long term, I now have a complete disdain for that subject and I never touch it again. And I feel like that also needs to definitely be part of the thing. Like, am I actually interested in the subject after I took this class? Sure, and uh, especially for older students, I think there's uh, probably a role to be played by student surveys. Um, and so I think that we can do that uh, successfully for older students. Uh, you want to design those questions carefully and fairly, uh, but that certainly makes sense to me. Mm. There, there's so something else that I should mention on, on the measurement front, and that is uh, getting back to, uh, to preschool and more broadly to early childhood care and education, which includes daycare, there's a, a fascinating development that has taken place in the, in the childcare world that has not received that much attention from the national news media. Um, 40 states now have what are called quality rating improvement systems for their daycare centers and for their preschools. Uh, these are QRIS systems. They probably need a better acronym. It doesn't roll trippingly off the tongue, but... <laughs> They're quality rating improvement systems, and essentially, they provide parents with some user-friendly information and indicators that help them to differentiate between good and bad daycare centers and between good and bad good and bad preschools. I think that's a, a, a very positive development because it, it empowers parents to make some choices 
that I think ought to benefit from that kind of valuable, uh, rich, richly detailed information about individual programs that you can have that ultimately takes the form of what I like to call an organizational report card. Mm. Interesting. And, and when you were talking about that, that just sparked this idea in my head. I remember, so I had actually spent a summer teaching five-year-olds um, and that was honestly one of the best experiences of my life. Mm-hmm. And something I noticed is every student would have such an interesting personality. And as soon as their parents would come in to like speak with us, it was amazing how similar a lot of the kids were to their parents. Like a lot of the behaviors <laughs> that their parents would exhibit were the exact behaviors that the, the child would also exhibit. And so something I want to understand is, is there work being done to improve the parents kind of relationship with the school so that they can actually also teach better from home? Like, is that a part of the education system as well? It it certainly should be. And some of the early, uh, some of the early, early childhood education programs or prototypes placed a strong emphasis on parents. So you've probably heard about the Perry Preschool Project in Ypsilanti, Michigan. Yep. Uh, It essentially was a very, very small experimental program that included about 120 kids, all of them disadvantaged, most of them black. And uh, they had uh, either one year or two years of a a truly outstanding preschool program with truly outstanding teachers. And studies have shown again and again that those kids who attended the Perry Preschool program uh, not only experienced phenomenal benefits in the short run, but they also experienced lots of long-term benefits. Uh, and, and not just economic benefits, but social benefits. Uh, studies have actually followed up with the parents over, over the years, and many of the parents say that, that what they remember most about the Perry Preschool program was that uh, the people who ran the program convinced them that they should be to their kids at home. Mm. And they did so because they were encouraged to do so. And I think that that pays off. So yes, there is definitely a role for parents to play. And we need to encourage parents uh, to to try to build on classroom education with whatever they do uh, at home after class. Now, I got to say that that reading is probably something that parents can do pretty comfortably. Helping their children to understand math is more of a challenge. But, you know, the way to do that, I think, is is not so much to, to get parents to uh, to work with uh, multiplication tables, important though that may be, if it's developmentally appropriate in the child's life, but but to get parents to take a rather different, more cosmic view of math and math education. You know, you learn rudimentary math skills where, where you're at the playground and you get on a seesaw. You learn uh, rudimentary math skills when you play with blocks. You learn rudimentary math skills in, in lots of different real-life situations. Uh, you know, uh, so I think what, what parents can do if they want to help their children who are struggling with math is to try to think outside the box a little bit and, and to try to recognize that uh, the kids sometimes acquire math skills through play and not just through uh, rote memorization. Mm. And, and, and this was something I was actually thinking about when I was teaching there. Would it be possible for some of that school funding to actually go towards maybe like a class, like a one hour class where parents, because the primary argument would be like, let's say a parent needs to work so much that they're not able to actually like, you know, um, give that time that's needed to their young child. Would it be possible to maybe like pay the child, the parents to come to a certain class and use school funding for that? 
it, it would be possible to do that. And there are some early childhood education programs that have done that. Uh, Art Reynolds has done a number of uh, interesting papers on the Chicago Child Parent Centers program in Chicago. In Chicago. And uh, they placed a strong emphasis on getting parents involved from day one. And they kept that going into early elementary school. And it seems to have uh, paid off in the long run. Mm. Cool. Well, you know, my final question before we wrap this conversation up for you is, as I'm, you know, getting into this policy space, something I kind of really want to understand is what seems to be the largest point of contention in the education space between the, you know, across the political aisle? Where, where philosophically do you feel like people are, are really disagreeing? Uh, let me count the ways. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, we've reached the point where Democrats and Republicans uh, seem to enjoy disagreeing with one another. Uh, and then they try to figure out uh, what the issues uh, will be that they'll disagree on. That's only a slight exaggeration. Uh, but uh, I think that there are clearly some differences between the political parties on charter schools. Uh, you know, it's, it's not a, a, a totally simple situation where Democrats uh, are skeptical and, and Republicans are supportive. In fact, uh, I'd say that uh, Democrats of color are actually more supportive of charter schools. And uh, white Democrats are less supportive of charter schools. Uh, but that's certainly one area where there are differences between Democrats and Republicans. Another area has to do with curriculum. We had uh, a gubernatorial race in Virginia that you may know about involving uh, Glenn Yalkin versus uh, Trey McAuliffe. And one of the issues that arose in that campaign was uh, whether uh, critical race theory should be taught in Virginia classrooms. So, in fact, it isn't, but uh, people got the impression that it was. And the Republican candidate, who's now the governor of Virginia, took the position that parents should play a stronger role in the classroom. And many of us believe parents should play a strong role uh, in the classroom. But the question is, who should be deciding the curriculum? And I'm not at all sure that that's something that parents are in the best position to do. Mm. Awesome. Okay. Those are actually very complex issues that I'm excited to kind of delve a little more into, but I wanted to say thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed this conversation. You're, you're welcome, Galton. As always, you ask excellent questions. So it's, it's a pleasure to talk with you.